Warning, binge mode contains adult content. We're about to talk about Quidditch, a sport which involves many young people straddling wood, (laughs) catching balls, putting them through various hoops. So if that's not your thing, please check out any of our other podcasts that deal with sports of similar nature. (laughs) One more warning. Binge mode contains... In addition to all the innuendo, spoilers. Right. If you don't yet know why Weasley is our king, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Hello and welcome to Hogwarts' first Quidditch game of the season. Today's game, Slytherin versus Gryffindor. The players take their positions as Madam Hooch steps out onto the field to begin the game. The bludgers are up, followed by the golden snitch. Remember, the snitch is worth 150 points. The seeker who catches the snitch ends the game. The quaffle is released, and the game begins! Executive editor of the Ringer.com. <laughs> Joining me today, now that he's finished confunding a keeper candidate for the <laughs> sake of his one day romance. It's necessary sometimes <laughs> to do that. It's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Where am I? What's going on? <laughs> Who is this? What is this place? Mal, yeah. all's fair in love and Quidditch. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we explore yeah. every facet of the Harry Potter universe. It is fully underway. Thank you for joining us, all of you who've been taking this journey with us. Whether you prefer the dulcet tones of Lee Jordan or the wacky repartee of one Luna Lovegood. Team Luna. When you're taking in a match, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points only. Five stars. Five Five stars. For Binge Mode, please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for you guys, you binge mode fans, and which is a great place to catch up on the latest odds, the latest wagers, the latest teases, all of Megalian's latest attempts to get in on that sweet, 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 sweet action. <laughs> so far on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've explored the Sorcerer's Stone book and film adaptation. And next Monday, June 25th, we will be beginning our deep dive into Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Today, though, We are talking all things Quidditch in our first edition of HP Extra, the episodes that we'll be dropping between book and movie bundles to explore all the other facets of the Harry Potter universe. In today's show, we are answering your questions in a special Quidditch-themed edition of Ask the Underscore. And then, in the back half of the episode, we're asking some questions of our own about real-life Quidditch in an interview with U.S. Quidditch co-founder Alicia Radford. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always, we will be going deep, deep on details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment Madam Hooch blows that whistle. Yeah, Hoochie. So pull on your robes and mount your brooms because it's time to head to the Quidditch bitch. Question number one Mm -hmm. from at Wood. JT5. Is this Oliver Wood, we think? It might be. Hello, Oliver. Hi, Oliver. How you doing? Quidditch is a fundamentally flawed game because the seeker is too important, right? Mm. Is the snitch worth too many points? I'm going to go yes. Clearly, right? Of course. I actually like the wrinkle of the seeker of this kind of game within a game where you've got like this one-on-one duel between two players while the kind of team game is going on around them. I actually really like that construction. Now, the snitch being worth a ridiculous amount of points as well as ending the game is strange. What do you think? Listen, Harry Potter is a sacred holy text. Sure. It is one of the most important things in my life. Yeah. I think a lot of people listening to this feel the same way. Cherish it. 
Hate when people rag on it. Yeah. However. Yes. One of the only things that even the most effusive Potterphiles out there can agree on, Quidditch is a flawed game. And you know who else agrees? The legend herself. That's right. JKR, who freely has admitted over the years that she got tired of writing about Quidditch. Yeah, she was just over it. Well, she invented it apparently after a fight with her then boyfriend. Here's a quote from JK. Quidditch was invented in a small hotel in Manchester after a row with my then boyfriend. I had been pondering the things that hold a society together, cause it to congregate and signify its particular character, and I knew I needed a sport. It infuriates men, which is quite satisfying giving my state of mind when I invented it. She was creating a sport to critique the importance of sports in society. Right. Effective, especially given how it takes over Harry's heart and mind and soul completely, too completely. Just some might slightly say. too completely. <laughs> Here's the thing. I agree with you about the game within the game. I also like the idea of different scoring tiers within a sport. I do too. What if catching the snitch mm. were worth 50 points instead of 150 or 30 points as it is in in Muggle, the real right. life Muggle version, which we'll talk about later in the show. That's right. And let me throw this wrinkle out there to you as well. What if it didn't end the game? So what if it was like a really valuable way to score and the match were timed instead? And it was like, I how like good it. is your seeker then? Then how many points can you rack up? Listen, I think real life Quidditch has improved upon the use of the snitch within the game. We'll talk more with Alicia Radford later and you can learn about that. But yeah, I, I agree. The snitch is clearly worth too many points and it's too powerful and just really a perplexing part of the game. But then again, you know, when you look at Quidditch through the lens of actual sports that exist in the world, I, I should say that Quidditch also, again, exists. Every sport has its kind of like strange things. You know, like I think it's weird that in baseball, there are rules for the American League and rules for the National League. I think it's weird that like, Especially weird for someone like you, a yes. famed American League New York huge, Yankee fan. Huge, huge American League Yankee fan. <laughs> Love American League baseball. I also think it's very strange that, like, why, it's bizarre to me that stadiums aren't uniform. <laughs> like, that's another one that's weird to me. Like, wait, hold on a second. These stadiums that. are not the same size? I love that, though. Because <laughs> then you can, the house rules of baseball thing is, well, I'm obviously a huge baseball right, fan, yeah. so I'm I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but the idea that you can build the team that fits your stadium, like the Red Sox should always win every game at yeah. Fenway because they should always be built with the basketball and the green monster in mind. Also, fuck the Red Sox. Ooh. Let's go O's! Yeah. One little fun golden snitch fact, since we're talking about Seekers and how much the snitch is worth, before the golden snitch was a ball, it was a bird. A golden snidget. Glad that the wizards moved beyond that. Yeah. Hermione voice, totally barbaric. Barbaric. Question number two. We got a lot of versions of this question and would like to uh, sincerely thank all of you for your faith in yeah. us having really remotely enough athletic ability to even consider this thought experiment. At Shira4588 asks, if Mal and Jason played Quidditch, what position would you be? Ooh. Ooh. You know, I'd be a seeker as well. I, I think because, number one, you're in constant motion. There's You don't have to worry about, like, the team game that much. It's just that head-up duel against the other seeker. I'm looking for the snitch. I can play either straight up trying to catch it or I can fake to, like, pretend I've seen it so the other seeker is following me. There's just It seems like there's a lot of wrinkles to that position. And also, like, listen, there's only one of you. A star position. Chaser is fine, but it's kind of like, well, I'll just play soccer, you know, like because now it's like that's too much like other sports. Beater, I don't want to go around like clubbing things all game. That's not my vibe. What about keeper? Yeah, it's not. It's too much pressure. And also it just feels like you'd really lose heart because there's so much scoring in the game. You rarely hear about keepers making great saves except for that one Ron made by accident. Uh <laughs> So I would have to say Seeker. I, it seems like the most fun position. You can fly wherever you want. And also, like, it's just a glamour position. Uh, I'll pick commentator. <laughs> <laughs> Put me down there in a booth with Lee Jordan. Maybe bring Luna in. Three-person team. No, in terms of on the field action, I worry that if I were a Seeker, 
my mind would wander too much. Mm. Too much downtime. I'm going to be thinking about binge mode edits <laughs> while I should be looking for the snitch. Also, I worry at this point in my life about my fading eyesight and oh. all of my other various deteriorations. Not sure I could hold up as a seeker. Seekers have to be slight and fast. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm fast enough. I don't know if I have the build for a seeker. Well, you're on the, you're on the broom, though. It's not like you're running. I want to be a chaser. Interesting. I considered saying beater because I love baseball right. and the idea of just getting to whack things to club, with a bat right. sounds really pretty cathartic. Right. First of all, it requires a lot of hand-eye coordination, and I worry that I would I would whiff and then I'd get hit by the bludger. But, but I also all the time, yeah. I also worry that I would inadvertently pull a McGlagan, you know, by banging someone else in the head. Mm. I don't want that kind of pressure. I definitely don't want the pressure of being a keeper. Just way too on stage. Too much is on your shoulders there. You get blamed easily. I don't like blame. Chaser seems really engaging. You know, sure. you get to really feel the pace of the match. You get now, to pass. The thing I think would be very frustrating about yeah. being a chaser is that you could have a like incredible performance. Like you could have the LeBron game one finals experience. And then your fucking J.R. Smith teammate of a seeker is out Terrible. there blowing it for you. I can see how that would weigh on you as a chaser. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. It's all about what this asshole yeah. does, this glamour position. Speaking of J.R. Smith, quick shout out to Ari Berkowitz, who made us think of J.R. with this question. Can Seekers be blamed for catching the snitch too early or too late? With your singular focus on catching a very small and very fast-moving object, I imagine it would be supremely difficult to keep track of the score. Uh, JR, thank you for submitting a question under your Ari Berkowitz burner account. We appreciate hearing from you. Wow. <laughs> Number three. Matthias asks, what unpopular strategy does an analytics-minded Quidditch team employ a la shifts in baseball? Oh, Hashtag wow. trust the process. So we got a lot of questions that were, in essence, moneyball questions. Yeah. How could you change the strategy of Quidditch? What's the market inefficiency? What could you do? And a lot of the questions involved some version of, in essence, could you have more than one seeker looking right. for the snitch, right? Because, of course, if the match only ends when you catch the snitch and the snitch catch is worth 150, yeah. that's the obvious place for your mind to go first is have more than one person looking for the snitch. However, according to Quidditch Through the Ages— one of the rules of Quidditch is the snitch nip, which is the name of a foul in which, quote, any player other than the seeker touches or catches the golden snitch. Here's an example of when this came into play. According to JKR's Pottermore post, at the 2014 World Cup, Brazil was beating Haiti mm. 190. This is a first round match. One of the beaters on the Haitian team earned his team an automatic loss wow. by catching the snitch. So you cannot do this. Our understanding, based on the information we have, yeah. is that only one person on each side, the seeker, can catch the snitch. So with that in mind, what other strategies might fit into the Mori Ball, mm. Money Ball, trust the process, I, efficiency tactic? I would do, I call this the press. Okay, your six other players cannot touch the snitch. Fine. They can look for it. Everyone look for the snitch. Okay. Forget the quaffle. Okay. No scoring there. We go all out to catch and find the snitch. And you create some kind of like pattern where everybody's flying in a certain pattern, looking for the snitch, looking for the snitch. And when they see it, either there's some kind of call or hand signal, and then your seeker comes in and you use the rest of your team as kind of like blockers to throw the other seeker off. Okay. I'm intrigued. I have a yeah. couple questions. One, do you at least keep your keeper? In front of the hoops. I go, no, I go all out. Okay, so if you're going all out, you're leaving your hoops undefended. This means you have a real time limit yes. on your spot because the most you can get, it's on the one hand absurd that the snitch is worth 150. On the other <laughs> hand, it is only worth 150. Right. So if the other team has scored 150 or more, you would lose if you caught the snitch. Also, you can't tip off the other seeker. You need to somehow alert your seeker without the other seeker seeing it, because what if that other seeker is more skilled? These are all great points. <laughs> I, I still think, listen, seven pairs of eyes are better than one pair of eyes. And I just feel like you could at least spot the snitch just a lot quicker with 14 eyes looking for it as opposed to two. Yes, obviously, you're letting them score. I still think it's hard to score. I, you could pull your keeper, I guess, and just have the keeper be looking at that kind of like vertical space that is right in front of him or her. But I think 
with the snitch being so important, you need to dedicate the resources then to catching the snitch. Go all out snitch. I call it the snitch press. <laughs> all right. Let me throw this out there. Tell me what you think of this. Yeah. I'm not even sure I like this, but as okay, a thought. Sure, sure. What if instead of pulling your keeper away from the hoops, mm. you add another one? Maybe even two. Okay. So you are going all in on defense. This is in essence the shift. Ooh. Let's bring a defensive shift to Quidditch. Defensive shifts, of course, becoming increasingly popular with analytically inclined baseball teams looking to exploit hitters' tendencies by putting their defenders where the hitters put the ball the most. You're only going to pull? You refuse to drop a bunt down the third baseline? All right, good luck getting your ball past my defense. I like it. Bunch everyone up in front of the hoops. Do not let the quaffle in at any cost. And then if you're getting anything in on offense, if your chasers are doing anything, you might just be able to make up the margin. Interesting. What about this? What if we teach Giants to play? I mean, if you're Giant as a keeper, obviously you need a gigantic broom. But I think then you're kind of blocking off the area of the hoops, therefore giving you a little bit more stouter defense. I still think, listen, the snitch ends the thing. Let's all look for the snitch. Let's go for the snitch. Let's try it once at least. Here's one that Zach Cram likes, yeah. thinking about the pitch in different dimensions. Mm. So instead of just thinking about the linear hoop-to-hoop -hoop path, he wants us to think up and down, mm. right? You got three chasers, have them toss the quaffle up and down to each other instead of always just thinking about these linear paths because maybe the other defense isn't going to be prepared for that kind of approach. I like it. One of these three-dimensional rather than two-dimensional tactics is called the Poor scuff ploy, which involves a chaser flying upward to draw the defense away and then dropping the quaffle down to the teammates who are speeding toward the goal. We'd love to see more innovative play calling. Basically, we need the Chip Kelly of Quidditch. We need someone to come in there and design a new offense. Gus Malzahn, where are you? What about equipment? That's the other thing. Well, this is— Just this be, is, be rich. I, the truest market inefficiency, as always, is money. Well, beyond that— some kind of magical headset that allows them to communicate. Like there's a lot of like yelling and hand motions right now in Quidditch, which I think is pretty archaic. Like, can our team communicate with each other? Like, uh, let's make it a little easier. What about little flags or something? You know, like I just think we can add some gear to Quidditch to make it a little bit more efficient and allow our team. It is a team game after all, allow our team to communicate rather than just scream across this vast, like, open space at each other. I got one for you. Wear yeah. helmets. Yeah, I think that's a must. First of all, where's the concussion protocol in Quidditch? I guess they're just thinking, you know, we get to prom freeze, and, and as long as this person isn't decapitated or something, like, we, <laughs> she can just heal them up. Right. What's a busted skull to Madame Pomfrey? Right. Nothing at all. Right. If you had—I'm thinking of this, again, in baseball terms as kind of like, what is Quidditch's version of an elbow pad— for a home run hitter that allows that home run hitter to comfortably crowd the mm. plate. You don't have to worry about getting nicked. Hey, if you do, great. You can take a base. So what's the kind of thing that would allow the seeker and the chasers to not fear the bludgers, just to be able to be more aggressive than the other team? Interesting. Also, maybe everyone should just drink Felix Felicis, even though it's outlawed in competition. Well, it happens all the time. We know it does. Number four. At Gordon Duffley asks, and we got a lot of questions yes. about this man here, Victor Crumb. Victor Crumb. Vic. Vicky. Vic Crumb. Underrated, overrated, or properly rated? Quickly, a little context for the listeners. Why did we get so many Crumb questions? What did Victor Crumb do to earn this many Ask the Underscore inquiries? Victor Crumb, a rising star, worldwide international star on the youth Quidditch scene, as the seeker for Bulgaria, he notably caught the snitch in the finals match of the World Cup against yes. Ireland, thus ending it, even though his team was down and the 150 snitch points would not put them over the top. One of the most divisive plays in Quidditch history, for sure. Got to third base with Hermione at the Yule Ball, as far as anyone knows. Just one of the elite athletes in, in World Quidditch. And so people want to know, like, how good was this guy? How does he compare to Harry, for instance? What do you think? The answer is that Victor Crumb is a Quidditch legend. He's a legend. And that this one lapse in judgment or or deliberate decision to, as Harry offers up, end the match on Crumb's own terms. 
Should not. It's no I in team. <laughs> That's all I have to say. There this is from I. the man who a mo- mere moments ago was like, give me the glamour position where only I matter. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, I'm not going to catch it if we're going to lose the game. <laughs> There's no I in team. There is an I in Hermione. Yeah, there is. But, Speaking but, of Crumb and women, I would just like to share one of the quietly best moments in the series, which is when Crumb shows up to Bill and Floor's wedding and says, what is the point of being an international Quidditch player if all the good-looking girls are taken? Damn, what indeed, Vicky? Damn, what indeed? Damn, damn, But in case you guys are wondering, Victor Crumb went on to Quidditch excellence. He, he won a World Cup title. He brought that trophy to Bulgaria. He did it. This was not the end of his Quidditch main stage prowess. Now, this was in 2014 at the age of 38. Previously, he had quit the sport in 2002 after a devastating loss in the final. Came back, age 38, and got it done. So, in other words, properly rated. He's a legend. There's a reason that people talk about this guy. Number five, Jay Squeezy asks, did McGonagall hit up the Gryffindor Alumni Network to raise funds for Harry's broom? That was a fresh Nimbus, probably from the showroom floor. Definitely not used. Did the shop owner hear it was for Harry Potter and just throw it in for free? So many questions. I agree. I think she took it out of her slush fund. Mm -hmm. McGonagall has money put aside that is not marked, that is untraceable cash that she uses for Things just such as this. You think she goes out of her paycheck and like goes and places bets? No. When she needs to, say, buy a brand new Nimbus 2000 to give to the first first year student in 100 years to play on the Quidditch team, she's got to do that untraceable. So she reached into her slush fund and that's how she did it. Do I think that there's an alumni network? I think clearly there's an alumni network. But I, I think this was McGonagall's doing. I think she did this on her own. It happened too fast for her to reach out to the network. I think. Never occurred to McGonagall to get anything less than the best broom, which That's is right. notable. That's right. She's like, I'm corrupt. And if incredibly I'm going to be corrupt, corrupt I'm going to be peak corrupt. She's incredible. When folks were uh, allegedly impermissibly funneling money to Reggie Bush back in the USC days, you know what else they were doing? They were sending letters to Minerva McGallion McGonagall asking for tips and guidance on how it's done. McGonagall is an elite, elite impermissible benefits provider. I'm actually shocked that it wasn't more of a scandal like amongst the student body. You know, like Hedwig brings this thing in during meal time. Everybody sees it. Right. The news would have traveled incredibly fast. Who got the Wait, Harry Potter has a nemesis that? Yeah, McGonagall got it for him. What? Are you kidding me? And the kid is on the Quidditch team? What is happening? We got a couple questions about why the students are allowed to buy their own brooms, like why this isn't standardized, which is interesting to think about. Because, listen, the corruption, the system, it's rotten at its core. Like, I don't even blame McGonagall. She's just taking advantage of what is there, which is a system where any person can say, as long as I have the money. I'm going to get the best possible broomstick that I can. The entire Slytherin team comes in in Harry's second year with Nimbus 2001s from Lucius Malfoy. That is a far worse offense than what McGonagall did yes. in terms of volume. Now, the fact that McGonagall is a staff member just adds a just, I feel delicious like, wrinkle. How much did uh, McGonagall slip you to say that? Is, is this not far worse what Lucius <laughs> has done? Listen, I think if we've established anything, it's that she doesn't hesitate to slip someone whatever they need. <laughs> to help her gain a trophy and victory in the end. McGonagall herself a Quidditch player back in the day. Yeah. A good one, too, until a concussion and rib injury after a brutal fall against Slytherin ended her Quidditch career and helped feed this monster within. They talk about the monster within the Chamber of Secrets. What about the monster inside of Minerva McGallion McGonagall? Number six. At Sam McBride, 19, says, between KD, Steph, Draymond, and Clay, who would play seeker, beater, keeper, and chaser? Hmm. I think You're welcome is... to throw Jordan Bell and his Henny in there if you want to. Yeah, I think that, oh my God. <laughs> I think that Steph would be a chaser. Uh, really? I think that Steph and Clay would be chasers. You don't, I think, think, th- you don't think Steph would be a seeker? They want the Again, ball. the build. They want the quaffle in their hand. But the vision, the vision yeah. and the build. 
Draymond's a beater. We can agree. Draymond's on that. a beater. There's no question. KD is Doesn't the seeker. Doesn't even need a club. Just kicks people. Yeah, KD is the seeker with the reach. I feel like Steph and Clay. They want to feel that ball. They want to feel the quaffle. They want to revolutionize Quidditch by showing you how far away from the hoop you can score from with the quaffle. <laughs> Whereas KD is just out. He's just looking for that snitch. Who's the captain? Because again, much, much like at the end of Varsity Blues, there's no actual adult Iguod- here coaching. The children Iguodala, are coaching right. themselves. Iguodala is the captain if he was playing. Number seven, Brown Girl Logic asks, if players are were allowed to use spells during a match, what do you think would be the top three most useful spells? Aside from the obvious Akio Golden Snitch, yes, mm, that yeah. would be quite useful. That would be that would be handy. I'd like to think that if some limited spells were allowed during Quidditch matches, which of course they are not, you can have a wand on you. We see this with Harry in Prisoner of Azkaban when he wants to be able to fend off the Dementors, but you are not allowed to use magic in the match, as part of the match. I'd like to think that if you could, Akio would still be off one. limits. Much like when they're hunting Horcruxes, they can use magic, but Akio doesn't work, yeah. right? When you go into Gringotts, magic is a part of the experience, but Akio is not working. I'd like to think that would not be a part of it no matter what. Listen, binge mode is a family. We protect each other. <laughs> we support each other. We care for each other. We try to only build each other up, never tear each other down. However... Sometimes someone on the binge mode team does something so egregious that we have to put this person on blast. (laughs) And binge mode fact checker and researcher Zachary Cram shook us collectively to our core. When prepping for this episode, he put the following suggestions into the margins of a Google Doc. Number one, we know the Confundus charm works rather effectively on keepers. I imagine Avis could be useful if you set a flock of birds after an opponent. Okay, so he's starting mildly. Now, suggesting confunding an opponent, this is, of course, a reference to what Hermione yes. does to McLagan to help Ron win the keeper battle on Half-Blood Prince. You might think, okay, this is canon, so this is an innocuous suggestion. What Zachary Cram is saying here is that it is okay to confuse your opponents so much that they might potentially have any number of terrible things befall them. For McLagan, he just lost out, you know, yeah. in the keeper battle. What could happen to any number of other people who were confunded? You could fall off your broomstick to your death, and Zach Cram would say, tactic well executed. It's attempted murder. Zach then escalates from there. Quote, I mean, Imperio, if you really want to go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. The next line. The next line. Incarcerous, if you're okay with maybe murdering someone, <laughs> as I imagine it's hard to fly properly when bound by ropes. Oh my God. First of all, uh, Imperio, using an unforgivable, using one of the worst curses yeah. that you have right. in the magical realm in order to win a Quidditch match, I think, I think that's too much, personally. Zach is Kilgrave. That's what we learned today, is that Zach thinks mind control is acceptable and that he is the yeah. purple man. Well, uh, Cruciatus, like, if you're really, <laughs> if you're really trying to score a thing. Oh, and then here's what he followed up with next. <laughs> we know Sectum Sempra has an effect. Yes, we do. <laughs> we do know that. On people flying on brooms. He yeah. is, of course, referencing George Weasley's severed ear very th- in Deathly Hallows. Very hard to uh, fly a broom when your flesh and muscle and everything has been <laughs> sliced open magically down to the bone. It is quite hard to hold on to a broom when that happens. Okay, so nobody play Quidditch with Zach Cram is the takeaway here. Let's assume, for the purposes of actually answering this question, that unforgivables are off limits. Impedimenta would certainly be an effective sure, that's a little better. candidate here because you are slowing down an opponent, like yeah. on a chaser who's charging at you. What else? Could you do Expelliarmus and, like, make the broom fly out from under the person? Well, then they'd die. Now you yeah, sound like I think Cram. It, no, but if now they're low enough. Like Cram. If they're low enough. If they're low enough, what about a memory charm so they just don't even know what's happening? <laughs> what about, okay, I'm going to tweak your Expelliarmus suggestion. Strategically deployed. Let's say you get two, okay, think of it like a coach's challenge. Right, yeah, yeah. You get two Expelliarmus usages per game and you can only do them on beaters for their bats. Yeah. What about that? That's not bad. Okay. I'm trying to keep people alive. What about you and Cram, who are literal murderers? What about like Lumos if you can blind someone directly <laughs> in their eye? 
Anyway, let's move on. This is horrifying. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh, Rapid fire here at the end. Number eight, Ryan Pfeiffer says, let's say sometime during Harry's time at Hogwarts, there was a teachers versus students match. Obviously, Madam Hooch makes the cut. But how do you build your all-student and all-teacher teams? Who wins? Anyone? We don't have time to do a full, let's set the rosters for each side here. But who do you definitely want on each team? Hagrid in the hoops You don't as a think keeper. he's too big, uh, too big for a broom? That's what I want that size. When they do the seven potters in Hallows to try to trick Voldemort, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hagrid can't ride a broom. He's got the motorbike can't we just his size. Listen, his size I, might be a liability. Is this a magical realm? Is this a magical world or is this not a magical world? Cut down a tree. And make it into a gigantic broom for my guy and put him in there. This is like in hockey when they're like, what if we just get a sumo wrestler and sign him and put him in in the nets? This is what I'm saying. Let's get a half giant and just literally you can't get the quaffle past him. That's a big man. That's a big man. (laughs) Give me McGonagall. Because if there's one thing we know, it's that she thinks Quidditch is the most important thing in the world. She really does. She might front that she thinks stopping the Dark Lord or molding young minds, educating students. No, she cares about Quidditch. That's it. She will give her life for this game. When you and Zach Cram are on the other side trying to murder people, you know who's right there with you? McGonagall. I'm not trying to murder them. Just trying to confuse them to a really intense degree and maybe, maybe slice their bodies open. (laughs) (laughs) Give me Trelawney. Ooh. Yeah. She can't see, really. <laughs> the, inner like, eye, <laughs> the, uh, the inner eye. The inner eye. She's going to be able to find where the snitch is immediately. <laughs> I now, don't know. the inner eye does I not see it. upon command. Uh, let me but... just say this. She was right, like, twice. Listen, at a minimum, she <laughs> can distract of... the opponents with her nonsense, which is effective. Her shooting percentage is, like, two for 50,000. Mad-Eye, while not technically a teacher, although he was hired... <laughs> <laughs> and listen, at the castle all year, at technically. The, he was there. In a trunk, sure, sure. But he could see the snitch wherever it is. Great call on Mad-Eye. Yeah. Nothing out of sight ever. He'd know where the beaters were. He'd know where the bludgers were. Love it. Okay. Excellent one. Mad-Eye's team captain. He's dead, but if he were alive, oh my he'd God. be team captain. Spoiler alert. We did tell you there were spoilers. Number nine. Shana asks, what does the Quidditch Combine look like? What kind of stats would they look for? I think they'd look for thigh strength. You know? Yeah. You, they'd, they'd have like one of those Suzanne Summers thigh masters, yeah. but with a gauge that they'd, tells you how much strength that you're putting out with your guys. That thigh strength is really important. Remember Harry's first snitch grab in chamber where he was gripping the broom with his thighs and then had both hands off the broom. So you, they'd want to see that. I think they'd want to see some version of a 40, mm-hmm. you know, like a straight out flat speed run. What else? I got one answer and one yeah. answer only. They check your Gringotts vault. Because if you're rich, you can afford the best broom. Doesn't always work, of course. The Slytherins still manage to lose despite having all of their players on brand new Nimbus 2001s. (laughs) But more often than not, it seems like having a fancy new broom helps. I'd love to know what the actual breakdown in terms of like how the brooms really do affect things. I'd love to know that. We need some advanced stats for Quidditch. We really do. Cram, get on it. And finally, number 10. This is special. I'm excited about this one. Megan asks, Jason. Oh, my God. Can we hear what a Jeff Van Gundy, Mark Jackson Quidditch call would sound like? Oh, Oh, my goodness. Mama, there goes that snitch. (laughs) I think that'd be the easy one. I think if they were just talking back and forth, Jeff would say, you know what I don't understand? Why is the snitch 150 points? I don't get it. Well, you, you don't understand. No, but why? I know Victor Crumb in the World Cup cut thing. Everybody's been talking about it. Nobody understands why. What is the scoring in this game? I don't understand it. Also, and I got to say, like, I, you know, I have, I have uh, young children. Do I want my uh, teens playing a sport where they're upwards of 80 to 90 to 100 feet off the ground moving at exceptionally high speeds? No safer place than Hogwarts. I just don't. I, here's another thing, Mark. Yeah. Here's another thing. Why are the Vila allowed at a World Cup match? Yes. They affect people's moods. People see them and fall in love with them. You saw in Ireland uh, v. Bulgaria, the ref was absolutely enamored of the Vila, lost his mind. Everybody laughing at him. You can't let them in the stadium. That's all. I'd just like to state for the record that 
that was easy for you to do because you believe everything you just said. I, I do. have heard you give that rant about the Vila. The Vila cannot, times. you cannot have the Vila in the stadium. You're just out there standing for Hassan Mustafa. It's unbelievable that you can have the Vila in the stadium. <laughs> Leprechauns are bad enough. I wonder how much of that leprechaun's gold McGonagall took. Uh, fucking Ludo is, that's where Ludo was like, oh, hold on a second. Ludo, literal bagman, <laughs> bagman. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for your questions. Can't wait to do this again. Next up, we're going to be joined by Alicia Radford from U.S. Quidditch. But first, a word from our sponsors. So you just finished watching a Netflix series like Wild Wild Country or Evil Genius. Now that it's over can't stop thinking about the show. You need more of this story. You need You Can't Make This Up, the new podcast from Netflix about the true stories that sound too crazy to be real. Each episode features conversations between podcasters, journalists, comedians, and the people who made some of your favorite Netflix shows, including Wild Wild Country, which follows the sex cult that took over a small Oregon town. And Evil Genius, the astonishing account of a pizza delivery man who robbed a bank with a bomb around his neck. They'll give an exclusive look inside their processes, explore stories they left out, answer your burning questions, and more. Plus, they'll talk about the upcoming season of Last Chance You, the Academy Award-winning series Icarus, and the mouth-wateringly good Chef's Table. You Can't Make This Up is available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast destination. Go listen to, subscribe to, and review You Can't Make This Up now. Woo! We are joined now by not only the first guest in binge mode history, but also by one of the world's foremost Quidditch experts. What a thing. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> what a thing. Alicia Radford, who... After building a Chamber of Secrets website as a 12-year-old, very Hermione-esque, I might add, very precocious, co-founded U.S. Quidditch in 2010, worked as the organization's chief operating officer and later as the acting executive director, and also authored the book Quidditch Turns 10. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk about Quidditch. Yeah. So first of all, tell us about your history with the Harry Potter story, your in your house in Petronas, just so we can get a feel for where you're coming from. <laughs> sure. Okay, so I grew up always thinking I was a Ravenclaw. And then when the, when Pottermore came out, I took the test, mm-hmm. yeah. the end-all test, perhaps. <laughs> um, and it said I was a Hufflepuff. Oh. Which, interesting. And, like, maybe my, like, my adult self, I can see more of the, like, Hufflepuff traits, but I still feel like sort of a lifelong Ravenclaw. Um. <laughs> well, you know, as Dumbledore said... Sometimes, you know, he thinks maybe we sort too soon. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's only later in life that we can know for sure. Maybe our house has changed. What about your what about your Patronus? Oh man. Um probably a kitten. Aww. It probably wouldn't be Aww. like very that. effective at like delivering messages, but <laughs> I love that. I think my Patronus would probably be my my cat, Halo, Aww. who I love and cherish, <laughs> and he's the force of good guarding me every day. Oh. So how did you become a Harry Potter fan? Like, what's your origin story yeah. with the series? When did you discover it? Did you fall in love right away? Were you just deeply enmeshed in the entire universe immediately? Did that happen <laughs> over time? Obviously, if you're building a Chamber of Secrets website as a 12-year-old, it's reasonable yeah. to deduce <laughs> that it happened fairly quickly. Yes. I was 10 when I first discovered the books. And I think at that point, Chamber of Secrets had like almost come out. But I remember my mom gave me the first book and it was a while before I read it because it seemed like a fad to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to read this fad book. But then as soon as I did, I kind of loved it immediately. And my first copy was like a paperback copy. And I remember like taking notes in it and on the back cover, I like wrote down important pages <laughs> that I wanted to remember. Um, and actually I think yeah, about the same time as I discovered the Harry Potter books, we got internet in my house. Hey, um, wow. that's a and landmark, so, yeah. landmark <laughs> period of time. <laughs> Almost as good as yeah, getting a Hogwarts sure. letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as we got the internet, some of the first things I searched for were Harry Potter related. So mm-hmm. I found Harry Potter message boards. And I think at that time it was in that lull between books three and four. So I spent like... Okay you know, a year or so debating what might happen in book four. And that's 
that's when I taught myself some coding to make that website. Um. Wow. <laughs> what did the UI of the website look like? So I log on to chamberofsecrets.net or what have you, and what do I see? Let's see. I think it was on GeoCities, and I saved it. <laughs> Incredible. Um, <laughs> Were you were you greeted by a Lockhart saying, "Do you live here?" Yeah. <laughs> well, you are you are greeted by like a paint line drawing of a snake, um, oh, and so the it. intro message says, "Welcome to the Chamber of Secrets. Been investigating the sink for too long, eh?" Oh. Well, no matter. Oh. <laughs> One thing to remember in your explorations: watch out for that basilisk. He's got quite an eye on him. Those fangs hurt too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah. Very Hermione-esque here. All the details, all the warnings. <laughs> Certainly a scribbled note in the corner that said pipes. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds like everything in the the series really became a meaningful part of your life and your fandom right away. But when you read Quidditch specifically for the first time, did you immediately have this moment where you thought, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to get on a broomstick and play this sport. I want to be a part of this. Like, what was what was the journey like for you from someone who was reading about Quidditch and consuming it that way to someone who not only wanted to participate in it, but actually found a way to? Yeah, it, it was always compelling. I grew up, like, playing basketball and track mm-hmm. and volleyball and all that stuff, so I thought it would be awesome to play Quidditch. Actually, on the Chamber of Secrets website, my cousins and I tried out Muggle Quidditch at some point, and I, like, wrote the rules down, and it was not nearly as good as the <laughs> the U.S. Quidditch rules ended up being. So take us into that. What appeals to people about Quidditch that they would want to play it in real life? And then talk about some of the, perhaps some of the differences and the way you have to structure the game to make it playable as an actual game. Because people can't fly. Yeah, people can't fly can't in real fly. life. That's one of the, <laughs> one of the wrinkles, no. unfortunately. So once you factor in that people can't fly. It's true. I used to always think that, like, there were enough, like, physics nerds in the world who liked Harry Potter that like eventually we'd get to some sort of flying broomstick or like Segway version. But (laughs) at this point I I totally love the ground-based version. (laughs) But I feel like there's a number of sort of inroads into Quidditch that are sort of related. I think the game that has evolved over the years is just foremost like a really fun game to watch and play because the game of Quidditch kind of, you know, has elements of so many other games built in that there's a lot to be watching at any given time. And it's got that ability for a really complex strategy. Mm. And because there are sort of different games, it plays to different kinds of athletic strengths. Like as a basketball player, I gravitated towards being a chaser. And people who, you know, the the beater element in the ground-based game is is sort of more based on dodgeball. And people who had like better aim than me (laughs) enjoy being beaters. And also for me, especially when I first heard about real life Quidditch getting started, it was my freshman year in college and Mm -hmm. it was just, it felt magical. It was like I was, Mm -hmm. like here I was having to figure out how to become a grown up and here was a way to kind of maintain the sort of childhood magicness, but like bring it into my adult life. And it's maybe, you know, irreverent and silly, but also athletic and fun. And it was a chance to start something new. Love that. Yeah, the moment I saw the moment I saw it, I was like, I, I have to do this. <laughs> so how did you go from, oh, this exists? Yeah. I feel like a kid again. Magic is real. Magic is in the world. It's all around us. I have to be a part of this <laughs> to I'm gonna co found an organization and yeah. make this a formal, meaningful part of my life. Yeah. I'll tell you the origin story. Please do. <laughs> yeah. So in two thousand five at Middlebury College in Vermont, just like a small liberal arts school. A group of kids had been playing bocce every Sunday, Mm -hmm. and one day in October, one of them named Xander said, why don't we play Quidditch instead? And so they got 12-ish dorm mates to go out and play, um, along with Alex Benepe, who ended up being the person to take it over at Middlebury. The game just sort of immediately clicked. Everyone had a lot of fun. They kept playing it every Sunday. And at the end of that first school year, Middlebury had 12 intramural teams. Incredible. And yeah, which... It was like explosive growth. And so the next year, Alex wanted to try to get media attention to see if it would spread around. Mm -hmm. And he managed to get a Wall Street Journal article, which led to like a CBS news segment. Mm -hmm. And that's what I watched. So that was in 2007. So I watched that segment and then immediately started, you know, emailing friends and saying, we have to start a league at the University of Washington where I went to school. So I found Alex's email and asked for the rule book. So that's how we became sort of internet acquainted. And the next year, he wanted to have a World Cup tournament. So he sent out 
an email invitation to all the like, you know, hundreds of kids across the country who had emailed and asked saying they wanted to start teams. So in November 2008, the University of Washington went to that World Cup with 12 other universities. And it was it was a magical weekend. And I remember at the end of the tournament, I went up to Alex and I was like, can I help you organize this on the West Coast? Wow. And he said, sure, <laughs> because we were the only team from west of the Mississippi. Oh, my goodness. Um, who came. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. And so he said, sure. And we started working together. And then in, in 2010, um, it was big enough that we wanted to start a nonprofit. And so Alex asked me to be on the inaugural board of directors. What a thing. My and that was in the run up before the, the first World Cup that was going to be outside of Middlebury. We decided to move it to New York City, where Alex was from. And it jumped to 46 teams. And then right after that World Cup, I graduated and decided to move to New York to try to work with Alex to make Quidditch become a thing that could maybe even, you know, sustain us in like a full-time job kind of way eventually. Did you guys, in that moment in time, you know, you're relocating based on this Mm -hmm. and you're watching it sort of swell and grow and spread around you and you're seeing that the excitement is, you know, there's this element of just fascination, like, oh, these muggles are trying to play an aerial sport, but they can't fly. But then there's also this really genuine, sincere excitement and buzz where people think I can be a part of something that I've spent all this time wondering if I could ever be a part of. But did you guys ever think or anticipate that it would take off in the fashion that it has? This is a massive thing now. Did you ever allow Mm -hmm. yourself to believe that it could get this big? I think we did. Um, And I think that was, that was a lot of the sort of early driving force that sort of, Oh my God, this is incredible. It was basically like, we have to get this in front of people. We have to show people. And it was a given, you know, that most people would love it. (laughs) Right. Or like, you know, the target audience, like the Harry Potter connection, which is obviously a huge cultural phenomenon. And like beyond that, just the fact that it's actually just a great game and an awesome sport. Yeah. So I, I kind of never doubted that with enough work and like the right marketing and, and everything that it would take off. Talk to us a little about the rules. You mentioned the rule book previously. U.S. Quidditch mm-hmm. awards 30 points for catching the snitch, not 150. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. people, even, even <laughs> great fans of the series, yes. will tell you that the 150 for catching the snitch, which also ends the game, is is it's tough to untangle what the logic is there. Could you uh, mm-hmm. talk about some of the differences? And then also, famously, there are 700 types of fouls in Harry Potter Quidditch. <laughs> How many fouls are there on a— on, U.S. Quidditch, and is it particularly hard to officiate? Yeah, I'll start with some major rules differences. You pointed out the big one about the snitch. Huge, Um, huge. huge. Game changing. (laughs) Literally game changing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think allows it to be, like, actually a sport and not just sort of, like, a vehicle for, like, you know, Harry's maturation and as a person. Um, (laughs) The beater game is pretty different. You know, in the books, the balls can fly on their own, and so you've got bats Mm -hmm. to kind of attempt to direct them in the way you want. Have you ever considered using drones? (laughs) (laughs) That would be pretty cool. I'm not sure that was on our radar in, like, you know, 2008, 2010. Listen, um, here to help. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I think that would be great. I think a techno version of this game with like segways or something would be, would be a cool expo match. But now the beater game is uh, people throwing dodgeballs. And instead of two bludgers, there are three. No team is allowed to have possession of more than two. And if your team has possession of two, you can't like guard the third one, oh. which is an interesting dynamic of one team or the other will always have beater control. And that's oh. often a pretty powerful position because when you get hit with a bludger, you have to drop any ball you're holding, like the quaffle or anything. You also have to dismount your broom and go back and tag your own hoops. And mm-hmm. until you've done that, you can't interact with play at all. So beaters can use that strategy to sort of, you know, clear the way for their offense or use nice. it on defense. And Spacing the field, as it were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, because you have a broom, you have to have a broom between your legs at all times. Uh-huh. It kind of leads to basketball-esque I always liken it to dribbling. You know, you're mm-hmm. mostly doing a lot of your throwing and catching with one hand, although a lot of people are really good at the sort of, you know, gripping the broom between the sides to go up for a catch or something like yes. that. As Harry did in chamber. Yeah. That's right. What's the So if you're comparing <laughs> it to, to dribbling, what's the, mm-hmm. like for people who are listening to this thinking, how do you possibly run around for that long with a broom <laughs> between your legs? Like what's the equivalent of a travel or a double dribble? Like are there a thousand infractions mm-hmm. that you can, you can sustain in that fashion? 
That would be like like if the broom slipped out from between your legs, which can often happen. Like it's it's a full contact sport, so you know if you dive for the ball or go through a tackle or something, and you end up off your broom, like dismounted. It's the sort of the same as they call it, like a back to hoops penalty. So as if you got hit with a bludger, you have to run back and tag your hoops before you can re-enter play. And another place that happens a lot is with the snitch. Mm. I think this is the other brilliant part of the U.S. Quidditch rule set. The snitch is a neutral athlete dressed all in gold with essentially like a flag football attached to the back of their shorts. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, you know, kind of like a lacrosse ball or something in a sock that's got, there, there are vendors that make snitch shorts, so now they're all pretty professionalized. Um, <laughs> and the snitch is the only player not on a broom, which gives the snitch a lot of advantage. And the seekers are not allowed to tackle or use force against the snitch. So it's kind of like an element of wrestling. Uh-huh. Um, where the seekers are trying to grab the flag football from the back of the snitch without, you know, toppling the snitch over or anything like that. And because it's worth 30 points, games can get really exciting if they're what we call in snitch range, you know, if the score is within 30. <laughs> um, so if that's a situation where your team is down, like your seeker is going to be, you know, just defending against the other seeker and trying to keep them from catching the snitch. Because the game still ends when the snitch is caught. How is the snitch, like, are there several snitches that you get to choose from? Like, are there star snitch runners? There are definitely star snitch runners. Um, it's usually on, on a tournament-by-tournament basis. The tournament staff will schedule who's snitching for each game. It's, it's basically like another official. Um, and, you know, snitches have their code of ethics and things to not favor one team over another. Um, oh. Because Quidditch is mostly played in a tournament setting with, like, maybe 45-minute game slots, and the snitch is released. It didn't used to be this way. The snitch used to be able to roam, like, all over mm-hmm. <laughs> campus or whatever, but it was not exciting wow. if the snitch <laughs> yeah. was caught off the field. This is like run and then right. it's like, when it's was the snitch campus. caught? Stop for a bite of the yeah. dining hall. <laughs> Game's over. Exactly. Middle of the pasta line. <laughs> I've heard of snitches being caught, like, coming out of porta-potties, <laughs> like, <laughs> climbing buildings. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Are they, are these people like cross-country skier, world-class athletes? Like, how do you stay in motion for that long? <laughs> the original snitch at Middlebury, his name was Rainey Johnson, and he was both a cross-country runner and a wrestler. <laughs> wow. Um, so his style determined a lot of the way snitch style evolved. And I think now there's sort of, you know, there are the fast people who can just outrun you. There are just the big people who are like, tanks you kind of can't get around and then sort of everyone in between (laughs) so given how impressively complex that all is and how many nuances there are to the rules and the gameplay and as you outlined there the, the strategy do you have like a one or two sentence elevator pitch explanation when people come up to you and say i don't understand people can't fly how does this work like what's your what's your most succinct way of summing up the entire enterprise i'm sure you get that question a lot from people yeah so the elevator pitch is something like we took a fictional sport and turned it into a reality quidditch is a mixed gender sport out of the seven people on the field at any given time a maximum of them can identify as the same gender and that language is extremely intentional to be very, um, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm trans-inclusive. Any gender that a player identifies with is considered that player's gender for the purposes of the four maximum rule. And Quidditch is a full-contact sport that has elements of rugby, dodgeball, and tag. When you talk to civilians about U.S. Quidditch, Mm -hmm. Quidditch in general, what is the reaction? First, there's, you have to ascertain if people know what Harry Potter is and, like, have any familiarity with that. Right. And then I feel like... There's a range of reactions from like, oh, that's so cool to like, how does that work? Or the classic like, but you can't fly. Um, And I think I think people are either like sort of surprised and delighted that it exists or extremely skeptical that it's anything other than some fans running around and pretending that they're in a book. (laughs) Then I go to the YouTube videos. In any sport, there are the classic matches, the great matches. Mm. What are some of the great memories you have of attending a Quidditch match? Oh, man. Um, So for the first six years, Middlebury Quidditch won every World Cup. Then we changed the format from World Cup being a first-come, first-serve tournament to a system where you had to qualify for it through regional championships. Mm -hmm. And then... That year, that was going to be World Cup 2012. Middlebury didn't even qualify. Oh, my oh. goodness. The shame. Yeah. The horror. 
<laughs> yeah, so it, so then it was sort of like wide open, and the final was between the University of Texas and UCLA, and University of Texas won, but that was such an iconic game. And in the years since then, um, the Southwest in Texas in particular has dominated. Wow. <laughs> so muggles have the USC-Texas 2006 Rose Bowl, but you guys have that UCLA-Texas <laughs> match, which sounds like mm-hmm. it was just as good. Who was the Vince Young of that match? Is there, like, are, do people emerge as icons within yeah. the sport? Is there a play question. or a highlight? You know, is there a snitch grab that just earns you renown as an international celebrity is there is there a quidditch hall of fame are there awards oh hall of fame that that's a great idea um there are definitely famous quidditch players quidditch players with notoriety (laughs) Um, the quidditch community has always been like very active on social media and we're actually just a few weeks away from a real world cup this you know a national team tournament which is in florence and i think they're expecting 30 nations oh my god incredible yeah and so the United States is sending a Team USA, which is, you know, full of kind of the Quidditch All-Stars from around the country. And there was the normal amount of, like, controversy about certain people not getting selected. Take us through it. Take us through it. Walk us through the scandals, (laughs) the the roster setting scandals. Oh, man. Um, well, it's sort of. <laughs> so the, the United States now has eight regions. U.S. Quidditch has eight regions. So you can only have, I think maybe they were allowed a couple extra players, like backup players, but a Quidditch roster has a maximum of 21 people. That's essentially like three lines deep because seven players have to be on the field at any given time. So out of the entire United States, you know, almost 4,000 players, 21 people are being picked to represent the United States in Florence. And there's a rule that each region must have at least one player on the roster. And there are a lot of people who think that some regions, oh, well, it's true. I mean, like the Southwest is a powerhouse region and there, there was great. definitely some, <laughs> some shade on the internet about <laughs> like whether certain regions were sort of taking away spots from more deserving players. And, Unbelievable. Um, and there's also the United States is going in with the hashtag redeem team because oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, what happened? Yeah. 2016. So uh, we've had these sort of uh, global stage World Cups. This will be the fourth one. The first one was um, a series of expo matches around the 2012 Olympics Mm -hmm. in London. And so the United States has won in 2012. They won in 2014. And in 2016, the United States lost in the final to Australia. And beyond losing um, the World Cup, that was... That was the first year that the United States lost a game wow. <laughs> to another country. A dynasty. Yeah. Are you guys hoping mm-hmm. to absorb some of the, the U.S. soccer fans who don't have a, a soccer team to root for in the World <laughs> Cup? In the, in the soccer World I Cup? I hope so. <laughs> Honestly, when I hear World Cup, my first association is Quidditch, so I always have to be like, oh, wait, that's not what most people mean. <laughs> Incredible. When they're talking about it. But yeah, so the United States is hoping to reclaim the gold this year. Well, we wish we wish you much luck. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you guys have a feel for and or care about what J.K. Rowling's like awareness of your work and of the the spread of Quidditch as an actual Muggle enterprise uh, are? Mm-hmm. Is it like exciting to learn that she is aware of it and engaging with it? Is that a factor at all in how you guys sort of program or go about your business, or is it just like a little extra? swig of that butterbeer if and when it happens. Mm-hmm. We do know that she is aware of it. And Alex, in the early years, he would send a letter and invite J.K. Rowling every year to the World Cup. Oh, um, you know, and we got some sort of nice letters back about how her schedule is very busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that, you know, she appreciates that fans like her book so much that they would play a sport based on it. Like, I hope she would love it. I know that she's sort of isn't there like a story out there that she sort of created Quidditch to like make fun of sports? Effective. <laughs> it <is> quite, uh, <laughs> yeah. Interesting that you should mention, you know, her feelings about sports in general. Like obviously now we are in terms of just new IP and new extensions of the world. We're in the Fantastic Beasts era. And mm-hmm. it, it remains to be seen what role Quidditch will have in that in that saga, in those five movies. And so you know, in light of the mission statement, which is uh, we, we have down here, we envision a future where every person in the United States is aware of Quidditch as a sport and has opportunities to play and engage at all levels. So in light of that mission statement and in light of the fact that the new Harry Potter universe 
IP that's being put out into the world is not Quidditch-centric. Is there any concern about Quidditch continuing to thrive and, and grow in popularity now that it's less central to the news stories? Or is it just so ingrained in culture at this point that sustained growth is basically a given? Mm-hmm. I think in terms of like long-term growth, like if you know, we want to look back or look forward to 100 years and see Quidditch follow some sort of trajectory like basketball mm-hmm. or even ultimate Frisbee. I think it can sort of stay true to the spirit and character of the Harry Potter novels, but I think future success will really be predicated on just the sport's own merits. I think that's the ultimate path. Um, and there's been, it's actually, it's sort of a controversial, touchy subject within the community, sort of how much do we rely on the sort of whimsical aspect of Harry Potter versus how much do we want the sport to stand on its own, especially because at this point, over 10 years removed from the sports founding, a lot of people who love the game and who play it haven't even read the Harry Potter books, or who have, but who wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as fans. There's a a big contingent of just athletes who love it. What sort of, I mean, I I don't know how easy or possible it is to put a number on that, but what is that percentage, if you had to estimate, of people who participate in the sport but do not actually consider themselves Harry Potter fans? Mm. I don't know if I can make any sort of well-informed estimate, but my, my guess is that it would be like maybe even 50, 50. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed Especially by this. Go on. Yeah. That is really fascinating and pretty surprising. So they see their friends playing it or they see it out and on the quad like, or yeah. they see a, a fun something online on the social channels that you mentioned earlier and they say, I want to, I don't care about broomsticks. I don't know what my Patronus is. Right. I don't know what a Patronus right. is, but I want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Exactly. Tell us about your book, Quidditch Turns 10. (laughs) Yeah. So in 2015, that was the year of the sort of 10th anniversary of the sport in its current ground-based muggle iteration being invented at Middlebury College. Um, And we wanted to do something special to celebrate the 10th anniversary season. So I created a coffee table book. One of the other things I do in my life is I'm a freelance graphic designer. And so it seemed like a great way to give back to the organization, especially because that was as I was transitioning out as acting executive director. So it's just a, it's a photo book that covers the first 10 years of the sport. And a lot of the sort of top and most prominent photographers gave me a lot of excellent photos to use. And there's a sort of brief narrative about the founding of the sport and a lot of quotes from players throughout the years. And it's sort of the seed material for a memoir I'm writing actually right now about Oh, wow. Those sort of founding years of Quidditch. Yeah. What's the time frame for that? I'm hoping to have the first draft done by the end of the year. Will there be a section in your memoir where you grapple with Victor Crumb's decision? It's very tough. <laughs> to catch the <laughs> snitch. Inexplicable to this day. For Bulgaria. Shocking. Thereby losing the World Cup final there, to Ireland. I feel like that's a controversy that's never been satisfactorily explained. Like, something was something going on? Oh, I like that. Like, was he confronted? I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Wow. Like, who? Right. What did Fred and George know? Oh, man. I think they'd maybe they took some action on the Hong Kong betting market, you know? Like, (laughs) speaking of which, perfect transition. This is a perfect transition. (laughs) Mallory and I have a theory. Upon much, after much discussion, after our most recent reread, we have come to the conclusion that Minerva McGonagall, who we call Megalion, is not only appallingly biased toward Gryffindor, appallingly biased. Let's talk about, I, I, I will mention just for a moment, her decision to reverse some century of history and appoint a first year to the Quidditch team. Shocking. Yeah. Of course it benefits her house. There is also the possibility, we believe, that she's addicted to that action. We think she's a chronic gambler Ooh. and that all of her... <laughs> All of her Quidditch decisions and point awarding or reduction decisions stem from yeah. whatever conversation she's recently had with a bookie. Harry, Harry and Ron crash oh, wow. a car, <laughs> crash a car into the Whomping Willow, yeah. and she's like, get yeah, out, no points. No it's, points. No points. No points. Don't My latest wager <laughs> indicates that I should probably say no points here. What, what are do you your think? feelings? Are yeah, we on to something? You know, I could see that. Now, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, sort of her personal life is like shrouded in mystery. It really is. <laughs> I also feel like as a cat, she has the potential to maybe hear a lot of conversations yeah, and things that 
nobody would know oh, about. Oh, wow. Interesting. Like, you know, between captains or coaches. Or- so you think mm-hmm. it, she's transfiguring into her cat form, using her ability as an animagus and sneaking in I to training it. sessions, I love it. to the locker room, gathering that it. intel, placing bets I accordingly, profiting. Listen, you know she's got to get that Nimbus two thousand money from somewhere. She was so she had really <laughs> a, a, her relationship with Oliver Wood a little too close. I think You're a little too familiar in terms of like the things that are being discussed marches directly to Oliver. I have your seeker. I don't, you know, Jay, something going on. Okay, well. Those were all the the questions and gambling conspiracy theories that we we had for you today. We are uh, so honored to have you here to share your Quidditch wisdom. We learned so much. We are definitely, I think, each going to get a pair of the the snitch shorts for sure. Well, Alicia is the author of Quidditch Turns 10 as well as an expert on the sport of Quidditch and one of the organizers of U.S. Quidditch. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, friends, we want it to end it on our terms. That's all. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Isaac Lee, and researcher, Zach Cram, who blocked the hoops for us every day. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again this coming Monday, June 25th, when we will be beginning our week-long deep dive into Chamber of Secrets. Until then, remember, we open at the close. Hello? Hello? Minerva? Why are you calling me? Why aren't you using it out? The owls are tapped. Listen to me. I want to make a parlay. Ireland. With Victor Crumb grabbing the snitch. Hold on a second. You want Ireland to win and Bulgaria to grab the snitch? It's a sure thing. Put everything on it. Don't say a word. Talk to you later. Goodbye.